Well, I'm indeed not James Barras. <laughs> uh, my name's Yvonne Rand, and um, I enjoy coming here very much. I find this meditation room quite beautiful and inspiring, and the monks' lives here quite inspiring. Um, I'd like to say a few words about my background and um, context. Um, I first began studying Zen in 1966 with uh, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who some of you may know. Um, his lectures were made into a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And uh, subsequently, after he died, uh, studied with uh, Dainin Katagiri Roshi, and subsequent to that, a wonderful Tibetan teacher named the Venerable Tara Tulku. Uh, one of the uh, benefits in uh, studying in uh, the several uh, traditions of Buddhist meditation is uh, being able to begin to see the elements from both the, Ter- from the Theravadan tradition uh, and from uh, Tantra or uh, Himalayan Buddhism in, uh, in Zen, especially in Japan. So that uh, in many ways, although I've studied with teachers outside of the Japanese Zen tradition, I feel like uh, they've uh, helped me understand the elements uh, from those various other traditions that are there in Zen. And um, certainly the Theravadan tradition is uh, is very important in Zen in terms of the uh, focus on forms as a vehicle for the cultivation of mindfulness. What I'd I'd like to talk with you about this evening is um, a focus that I've been thinking about uh, recently for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, primarily because um, in working with the people that I uh, practice with, uh, these issues have been coming up and in particular, we had a 10-day retreat in July, and these particular issues came up during that 10-day retreat rather uh, vividly. And um, what I want to focus on is the um, the whole territory in studying and training the mind that arises around expectations and assumptions. Uh, in particular, expectations that we may not be particularly aware of having, have not uh, sat and uh, thought about in terms of uh, how realistic the expectations may be. And um, in particular, uh, what happens when we have expectations we're not aware of having and um, then suffer from great disappointment than uh, when our meditation practice doesn't bear the fruit that we had hoped it might. My experience is that the more clear any of us may be about our expectations, the more likely it is that we can ask ourselves, are these expectations reasonable? Uh, Am I clear about what they are? Do I have the right resources, the appropriate resources for bringing about those expectations? And what assumptions are buried in the expectations that I bring to my spiritual life? 
I don't know if this is true for those of you whose home path is primarily in the Theravadan tradition, but I know that in Zen, especially in Japanese Zen, um, there has, especially in the United States, been a very keen um, expectation about enlightenment, whatever that might mean. Um, I suppose you could uh, imagine that uh, becoming enlightened means uh, enlightened, that is, turn the light switch on. Um, I think a more um, accurate and useful translation would be uh, to become awake. That is, to become awake to things as they are. And, of course, the suffering that we um, find ourselves with is when our expectations are not met and when we don't understand why they haven't been met. I think that um, in many of the uh, various uh, schools in Buddhism, especially here in the United States, there's a kind of uh, soft peddling, if you will, or understatement about the importance of having a spiritual friend or guide or teacher. Um, that if we don't have both the company of other practitioners, but also guidance, someone who um, can check us in terms of our understanding, uh, we can get uh, lost in self-deception, we can get lost in expectations that may not be realistic or that uh, will not uh, come into realization unless we have a clear guidance in terms of the kinds of practices that will lead to whatever it is that we're aiming towards. I have found that um, the language of setting a clear intention um, can be uh, more useful than um, expectations because in setting a clear intention, what I'm doing for myself is setting a kind of aiming, what it is I'm aiming to cultivate. And in my understanding about clear intentions, uh, that includes when I don't keep or bring about the intention that I'm going for. In other words, the missing of the mark is as important to bring attention to as the accomplishment of bringing about what it is I'm aiming towards. So, for example, if my, um, my aiming is to cultivate mindfulness and I... Um, walk through a doorway and I stumble. There's an elevated threshold and I stumble. That stumbling is a moment of bringing into attention or awareness that want of attention in that moment of going through the, the doorway. I think that for many of us, we have strong preferences for success, for uh, meeting the intention that we've set for ourselves and sometimes don't value or appreciate enough uh, the misses of the mark. Uh, when we don't uh, keep an intention, um, if we're 
willing to notice when we don't keep an intention, that can be enormously useful, enormously beneficial, because that's likely to be where there's some edge where what we really would benefit from is uh, training, studying the untrained mind in whatever area is revealed to me with the uh, not keeping of an intention. So when I set an intention in my own spiritual practice, I'm including in the setting of that intention the willingness to notice when I don't keep the intention. So my expectation is not that I will always keep my intention. My expectation is that I will continually renew my intention, including the willingness to notice when I don't keep it. It can be amusing. (laughs) And in fact, a bit of amusement can be uh, very helpful. Um, I think that often one can become uh, much too serious about one's spiritual practice. I think there's a, a difference between taking our practice seriously, but also taking ourselves lightly uh, so that we can uh, bear to see when we don't live up to what it is we'd like to live up to. This is where I think having a spiritual friend, a teacher or a guide, someone who has training and more experience than I do can be invaluable because that person is then in a position to be able to help me see what I'm not seeing. Uh, in, uh, in Japan, there's an expression that goes uh, something to the effect of the darkest place is at the, uh, at the base of a lighthouse. And I think that this uh, statement is really uh, a kind of warning to people who sit in the teaching seat Um, Because, of course, here we are giving out all this light, but uh, are we really uh, studying and training our own mind in in addition to worrying about everybody else's mind? Um, Which is why I think no matter who we are, whether we sit in the teaching seat or we sit in the student seat, it's important, especially for those of us who are teachers, to uh, also regularly sit in the student seat, to sit in the, that place where we are willing and in, va- in, fa- in fact, excuse me, open ourselves to being taught, to being instructed, to having someone point out to us what we may not have seen in our own spiritual practice. In the um, territory of setting, uh, bringing awareness to expectations, I would um, propose that embedded in expectations are often assumptions we may not be aware of having. So as we begin to notice assumptions that we weren't aware of, we can then ask ourselves, is this assumption that I'm beginning to realize I have realistic? Is it appropriate? Have I uh, set myself up for failure 
by having a bigger uh, assumption about what I'm capable of? Have I allowed myself to have the kind of companionship and guidance that would make my spiritual practice be more likely to lead me to what it is I would like to cultivate and attain? The word, as uh, many of you I'm sure know, the word Buddha means the one who is awake. So one uh, fundamental assumption for those of us who are followers of the Buddha's teachings is this um, aiming towards expectation, if you will, of waking up, of becoming awake. The expectation that we can become awake. My experience is, however, that that must include the willingness to notice when I've gone to sleep. When I've failed to notice uh, some habit that's so familiar, I don't notice that I have it. It's one of the places where having a swim buddy or a spiritual friend can be very helpful, uh, provided uh, the person gives us feedback that we've invited them to give us and that we are willing to receive. Ultimately, I think that change occurs in our lives primarily through um, self-diagnosis. So I can remember um, some years ago, a friend of mine who was just beginning meditation practice. And um, at some point, I came to some realization that she'd been trying to get me to come to for quite a long time. And um, when I came uh, awake about whatever it was she was trying to get me to wake up to, she said, but I've been telling you that for years. I said, I know, but until I could tell myself whatever it was, it didn't do me any good. I think she is to this day still cranky <laughs> because uh, she somehow didn't realize that until I saw what I needed to see, um, it wasn't her telling me wasn't going to um, do me any good. On the other hand, it may be that that continual dripping of um, wanting me to notice something uh, contributed to my coming to see whatever it was at the time. I think that um, paying attention to our assumptions can be uh, somewhat more uh, problematic because uh, often the assumptions that we have about ourselves or about each other um, are unexamined and unconscious. So assumptions may begin to be more apparent when we stub our toes on them, if you will. When we realize we've had an assumption we weren't aware of having and then suddenly come awake to that assumption through some uh, unexpected turn of events. Um, 
about, I no longer can quite remember, but I think a couple of years ago, um, my husband and I moved from our place in Marin County to Mendocino County, and uh, where we've been uh, establishing a small retreat uh, center. Center sounds more organized and serious than is perhaps the case, but we have a, a small meditation room and have been um, building small uh, meditation huts where people can uh, sleep uh, when they're there for a retreat. And we're in the process of working with a quite a remarkable um, man uh, who builds stone walls. And he's been uh, making stone walls to help hold the banks of the property. It has quite a slope in one direction. And um, every time we get a, um, a load of rock, as we did uh, this last week, I look at it carefully and think about how it's going to look when it gets put into the wall. And then the next thing I know, um, the rock wall maker has taken a rock and stood it upright because suddenly he sees the rock as a Buddha. So he keeps taking these rocks and standing them up, and we're beginning to have more freestanding rocks than we are rocks in the wall. And I, this man's name is, uh, is Bill, and I asked him um, how long he thought it would take to finish the wall he's working on. And he said, well, I really don't know. Um, it depends on how many Buddhas I find. <laughs> maybe to the end of the year, but maybe longer. So we recently, uh, a few days ago, uh, received a very large uh, dump truck load full of quite beautiful rock. And immediately, um, one of the stones has been now designated as an altar. Five more stones have been designated as Buddhas. Three stones have such lovely lichen and moss growing on them that they're now being viewed as gardens. <laughs> so, um, this theme of uh, expectation and assumptions has grown out of my experience with the rocks and the rock man this week. <laughs> On the other hand, um, I don't disagree with him. He has an eye for Buddhas. He can see them in places that may not be so obvious. But once he points them out, once he stands them up in their proper posture, he's uh, so far been absolutely correct. Um, a particularly large rock that arrived this week has quite a curve to it. It comes up and then curves over like this. For any of you who've been to... Um, uh, Bodh Gaya, you know that there's uh, in a nearby lake, uh, in the middle of the lake, there's a kind of island where there's a big figure of Shakyamuni Buddha with a big cobra, many-headed cobra um, 
over the head of the Buddha, protecting him from the rain and storms. And when I saw this stone, I immediately remembered that, uh, that Buddha in Bodhgaya. I asked Bill if he'd been to India, thinking that perhaps that might have been what had inspired him with this particular stone. He said, no, not yet. <laughs> so, in this um, bringing into attention awareness of whatever assumptions we may be carrying, whatever assumptions are embedded in our expectations, if we're willing to be interested and curious about what those um, expectations are, what those assumptions embedded in them are, we can then with some kindness ask ourselves, is this expectation realistic? Is this um, expectation carrying assumptions that I might want to bring some attention to. Not with any quality of judgment, but some quality of evaluation. And I think there's an important difference. I think that often, especially in meditation practice, we may have very uh, grand uh, expectations of ourselves and then be disappointed when we haven't been able to realize our expectations. Um, I met, um, I, I come down to, uh, to Berkeley uh, twice a month, part of the year, and uh, to teach classes at the yoga room. Um, six months of the year. So when I am down here, I have a chance to meet with the people that I'm practicing with in the retreat context uh, up in Mendocino County. So earlier this afternoon, I was me meeting with people, and uh, I met someone. Uh, I met with someone who um, has been suffering the con from the consequences of a, a an anger habit. And um, he had the ex expectation that he could get rid of the habit of anger in a few days or a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. Even though he grew up with a very angry mother and father, and even though he has experienced anger arising within him for uh, uh, not years, but decades. So uh, we had a long conversation about what would be a realistic expectation. Perhaps uh, noticing the arising of anger. Noticing uh, the arising of anger even after the fact can be a beginning.
he had in mind completely dismantling the habit. And I suggested to him that that was um, like asking himself to climb Everest without ever having gone hiking up a small hill. And of course, every time anger arises, whenever he loses his temper with one of his children or feels frustrated about something and explodes, he feels very badly. And that then feeds judgment, all kinds of unwholesome qualities of a conditioned, untrained mind. So I suggested, well, what about counting to ten? My grandmother used to recommend counting to ten. And uh, recently I read a, a study, these wonderful uh, brain studies about what's going on in the brain with certain emotional states. And in this particular study, uh, what, what was being reported was that if we count to ten, that's how long it takes for the arising and passing away of the anger that it's actually a, a quite beneficial practice. Oh, but it seems too small. <laughs> if my expectation is to get rid of some habit that I've been reinvigorating and re-energizing for much of my life, if my expectation is to get rid of that habit anytime soon, I'm probably going to feel like a failure. My experience is that change happens very slowly and begins with very small changes. And if I can notice those changes, and be grateful for them, I can build on those small changes and perhaps set a more realistic expectation about what I can change, how quickly can I change what I want to change. Do I know what, what is involved in finding out how to change what I want to change? I'm deeply grateful for the Buddha's teachings because the path of his teachings and the teachings of all those great awakened ancestors before and since Shakyamuni Buddha's time point out very practical ways of studying and training the mind. including the necessity of patience. 
So if I have an expectation that, for example, I want to do what I can to dismantle the habit of judgment or the habit of anger. I might begin by having the expectation that I can begin to notice a moment in which habitual judgment arises or a moment when anger arises or a moment when the cooler end of the anger spectrum begins to show up. Impatience, for example. Um, The friend I was meeting with uh, today uh, was not trying to uh, jumpstart one practice. He was trying to jumpstart three. And I suggested that he might start with one, and he might start with a small version of one. He said, but that's not going to bring about the changes I want quickly enough. Yes, he had a schedule. (laughs) Anyway, he somewhat reluctantly said, well, between now and the next time I see you, I'll try just doing one practice and see what happens. I said, well, for starters, how are you going to remember the practice you've decided to follow? One of my expectations is that uh, I probably will forget what I've said I want to remember. So I don't assume that I'm going to remember what I've set out to remember, unless I uh, make um, reminders and change them about every three days. Because if I don't change the reminders fairly often, pretty soon I don't see them either. Uh, For example, I have a a little bronze uh, figure of a goose. It's about that tall. It's a rather amusing figure of a goose. And uh, I've been using that figure to remind me about a practice that I'm working with. And I'll change where it's located every few days. So I'll kind of come upon it um, where I wasn't expecting to see it because it's not where I saw it two days ago. In other words, I'm assuming that I'll forget. Because so far, I've forgotten more than I've remembered. (laughs) And I also have noticed that my expectations are more likely to be met if I'm modest about what I'm going for. I think particularly for us as Americans, um, we want it all and we want everything and we want it now. And we're in a rush. We are in such a rush.
I think one of the reasons I'm so fond of retreats is because it's pretty hard to rush in a silent retreat, except, of course, in the mind. But with silence and enough time, we do slow down, don't we? And then, uh, like the rock man, we can begin to see Buddhas everywhere. Maybe it's a matter of seeing what we want to see. I'll tell you one short anecdote on myself and then I'd like to open it up to some conversation together. I, in the early 90s, I went to Japan on a uh, pilgrimage trip. Um, I've been doing a ceremony for aborted and miscarried fetuses and uh, babies who die at, at birth or actually any time in the first year of life. Uh, there's a quite beautiful... Um, shrine around the corner uh, uh, with a figure of uh, the earth store bodhisattva, uh, uh, Chittigarbha, and a smaller figure of the version of Chittigarbha in Japan called Jizo, a bodhisattva of compassion who is said to guide beings into life and out of life. So as you're traveling into life through well, the mother's pregnancy and birth, and as you travel out of life, as you're dying and have passed over, that's who you would call upon. So uh, I've been doing this ceremony for a long time, so I went to Japan to see how the ceremony was being done there and to visit uh, shrines uh, dedicated to uh, this particular bodhisattva. And um, when I was in, uh, in uh, on Shikoku Island, I was in a particularly beautiful temple, and adjacent to the temple was a graveyard uh, filled with uh, Jizo figures. It was very, very beautiful. And I stayed there until it was uh, dark. And I went out through the gate onto the street uh, on the outer edge of the um, graveyard. And across the street were rows and rows of Jesus. And I just, I couldn't believe my eyes. And I walked across the street and I looked more closely and it was rows and rows of tennis shoes. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that experience until uh, the rock man started standing up all these figures and I thought, he sees Buddhas everywhere. <laughs> well, there is a, a, a quite famous Jizo, huge, maybe 15 feet or more tall, uh, that's uh, in a shrine, big shrine house that's been built around it. And people have left their straw pilgrimage sandals at his feet and hanging around his neck. The whole house is just filled with pilgrims' sandals because, of course, 
um, this particular bodhisattva is said to be walking a lot uh, in the process of watching over uh, beings as they travel into life and out of life. So, I'm wondering if there is anything you'd like to talk about on the theme I've set or anything else you'd like to talk about. Yes, please. I'm remembering my first uh, Frank's interview. I think you're supposed to do something with this. There's some button. Check, check. There you go. I think it's on now. Um, on that topic, I was remembering my first uh, practice interview with my first real teacher who I recognized as a teacher and told him, you're my teacher. And he said, yeah, okay. Um, you have to have both those things. Yeah. <laughs> you're my teacher and yeah, okay. Right. Then right. there's a dialogue. Yeah. Um, and Did I was you spy first? Sorry? Did you spy on him first? Oh, yeah. I sat with him for a couple of months before I decided to do that. Such a rush. <laughs> well, I, I had no picture of exactly what a practice interview was, but I thought it might be a very deep, you know, secret ceremony. And he met me at a diner. And um, we were talking for a while about what my meditation is like. And I forget how he introduced it, but at some point he asked me if I thought it was realistic that I might... Uh, attain enlightenment in this lifetime. And I laughed. I said, no, I think I'm probably a few hundred lifetimes away. And he disagreed with that. And he told me that he really does consider it um, possible in this lifetime. And that was a real eye-opener for me. So that was an example of my expectations being very low mm -hmm. and a teacher saying, oh, you know, mm -hmm. don't close your mind. Mm -hmm. Well, how wonderful to um, find someone that you were drawn to work with uh, with that kind of confidence in you as a practitioner. Because, of course, um, for many of us, we uh, have a very low evaluation of our capacity. And I think that sometimes someone who knows what to look for can see things in another person that that person is not able to see in themselves, or at least not for a while. Um, you know, often um, in Japan, if you're with an old teacher, um, there's the sense that the old teacher's in front of you on the path, kind of as the guide. But there's also, as the student and the teacher practice for a while, for a while and the teacher is going up a hill, the student then puts his hand in the small of the teacher's back to help the teacher up the hill. So it's not so black and white. I remember uh, during a retreat, one of the first retreats I sat with Suzuki Roshi, I remember so clearly uh, his saying, it is true that sometimes I am the teacher and you are the student. It's also true that sometimes you are the teacher and I am the student. And that's certainly been my experience since I began sitting in the teaching seat. And um, 
I think it's very useful for us as students to understand that the relationship is much more fluid and changeable and many more possibilities than we may realize. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, playing off of what he said, um, I'm an editor, and I've worked on a number of books on education. And um, one of the things that they educators all agree on working with kids is that um, the kind of unconscious self-evaluation that kids have of themselves and the expectations that they have of themselves really dictates how much effort they'll put into something. So if they don't expect much uh, because of the self-story they tell themselves about what they're capable of, then they just won't put in the effort. Is the same thing true with spiritual work and with meditation? Well, I think there's definitely a relationship between... um, what I call the self-loathing habit and one's sense of what's possible. And we in this culture these days seem to suffer a lot from um, habitual judgment, especially directed towards ourselves. But you know, I also know that um, there's something about the experience of feeling seen and cared about by a teacher or guide that can change that. A a lot of what the teacher's function is is really um, being a kind of witness so that the student begins to hear themselves, hear what they say. When I'm sitting, uh, meeting with people, my main function is to be a witness in such a way that the person in front of me can begin to hear themselves. But also, you know, when we're practicing together and we listen to each other, the one person will bring something up, will ask a question or make a point, and you can almost feel the resonating uh, with other people in the room around that same question or point. We're vastly more connected, uh, interconnected, than we realize. Mm Um, The one other thing that I just wanted to add was that um, in terms of self-loathing and Uh and children and self-loathing, for another book that I uh, edited, which was on uh, on Buddhism and uh, in Thailand, there's a different Buddha posture for each day of the week and people have their birthday posture and they... uh, we had to go and interview the abbot of the Buddhist monastery on Oregon, mm-hmm. and um, who doesn't really speak English, so we had to use a translator. And I had to ask him about 
self-loathing and self-hatred. And I tried to explain that concept for a half an hour, and he did not know what I meant. Yep. We, we just Asian, couldn't get it across. Yep. Every Asian teacher I have studied with, when they encounter Western and particularly American students, don't get it. It's like, how can this be? I think it's important for us to understand um, that um, we have a corner on the uh, market of uh, habitual judgment. Uh, and even if it's mostly projected out, that habit is really significant in our relationship with ourselves. So. Um, Charlotte? I I wanted I wanted to ask you. Um, you said that you spoke to this person who was expecting his anger to somehow evaporate very quickly, and I've noticed um, something about this practice. And believe me, I've had plenty of practices where I've noticed no change whatsoever. But what I've noticed is the change seems to happen not where I expect it to happen, yeah. and it's actually quite dramatic when you, or for me, I feel it's quite dramatic when you sort of develop the acuity to see where the change actually is happening. Whereas I may still have problems with anger, I have this other thing going on where I notice very much that there's these moments of peace, these moments of peace that I haven't experienced before. So... I just wanted to see what you had to say about that. There's this terrible expression about there are many ways to skin a cat. <laughs> I happen to be very fond of cats and I'm currently raising some feral kittens, so don't take me literally. But um, if it's so, the teachings about interdependence and interconnection, any cultivation for wholesome qualities in the mind has what I would call the ooze effect. And um, I actually think those more kind of tangential changes with a big area like an anger habit um, are more likely to actually begin to uh, slowly ooze over in that direction when we aren't quite noticing. So the capacity for ease, for peacefulness, is an invaluable quality to have cultivated in this um, pathway for the uh, dismantling of the whole chain, emotional chain, that ends with anger but starts more at the, the cooler end with impatience and 
frustration and disappointment and all of that. Um, and that quality, that capacity for peacefulness um, can give you the taste of ease that if you're just heading kind of straight into I'm doing anger and I'm not doing anything else. Um, means I'm not noticing this, that what's happening at the edge. Change happens along those edges where we're not noticing, you know, with a big, huge spotlight. Um, I've been uh, reading the last few days some uh, poetry in a collection. It's one of, uh, I think, five volumes that R.H. Blythe uh, put together some years ago. And um, a lot of these poems, they're books on that he did on Zen. And a lot of these poems are really about... Um, uh, this uh, a description that you find in in certain uh, koan traditions, uh, where wisdom is like you know finding your pillow in the dark. So I would celebrate the sneak attack <laughs> factor that you're noticing. I'm very fond of the sneak attack. <laughs> yes. You just happen to have the microphone. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I have this question. Um, I've just sat a retreat where, uh, let's see, who is it? Sayadaw Vivekananda mm-hmm. was, was talking about the development of um, the, the concept of insubstantialness. You know, as a as a prep, you know, you do the insubstantialness, and then you do the what's the next one? And then you go to non-self. Uh, my my question is, I guess I'm the kind of person that when there's something to know about like that, it's like I I kind of turn towards it and examine it and what have you. And yet I don't find myself doing that at all in my meditation. I, I, you got any help here? Well, what are you doing in your meditation? Well, I, you know, I sit there and watch my breath go up and down and, you know, think about my children and my projects and come back to my breath and, um, you know, and, and then it just, it feels so, I, I guess, you know, I think I'm supposed to be watching my breath and... Well, that's... I don't know how to... I don't know that's how to, postgraduate I don't, work, you know. I don't know how to think about... Unsubstantial. <laughs> well, let me make this suggestion. First of all, how substantial is breath? This inhalation. And how substantial is this exhalation? And how substantial is all that thinking? And um, I don't recommend just placing attention on the breath. 
unless you are very experienced. It's much more sound to keep some aspect of the physical body and breath yoked together. So there, and there's so much physical detail, physical sensation associated with breath that it's not so hard to do. But also, um, it sounds to me like you have this practice of placement, of attention placed on breath, and then wandering. And that you're getting caught in the content of the wandering. It's very useful to know what does the mind do when the mind wanders. But you only want to check into that for about a week, and you'll get the picture of what the mind does when the mind wanders. And heaven forfend, don't get into content. Notice pattern, not content, because you'll be gone for weeks. I do think that, um, I mean, I know there is a place, and this is one of the great benefits from the Tibetans, uh, not much uh, acknowledged, I think, in the Theravadan tradition and certainly not in Zen. There is a place where thinking is appropriate. To think about what you're looking into. But I wouldn't do it in my formal meditation practice. I'd have a period of time when I sit down and actually think about um, this whole issue about substantial and insubstantial. I do inquiries. I'd look into. I wouldn't do that when I'm practicing uh, placement, uh, where the primary focus is on on uh, on the breath. But that's the kind of refinement that can be very useful so that you don't end up spending all your time wandering in the briar patch of thinking, oh, I'm caught in content. The difference between pattern and content, I think, can be quite useful. The difference between the pattern of judgment and the content of a judgment is really big. Anyway, that's what I can suggest. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. I'm interested how you um, spoke of Japanese Zen. Japanese, yeah, Japanese Zen, I guess. Focusing on enlightenment and... Uh, never having availed myself of, the, myself of the opportunities I had to meet Shunryu myself, in reading since then, I think of Rinzai Zen, Philip Kaplow, of focusing on Satori and enlightenment. Yeah. And perhaps D.T. Suzuki, focusing on enlightenment also. And when I look at uh, Shunryu, I see him saying, what we do is we sit. And there's one story I'm fond of, if I get it right at all, um, 
where Houston Smith was meeting with Shinryu and his wife, and Shinryu's wife. And he asked the question, you seem to not speak of enlightenment like D.T. Suzuki did. And his wife leaned over and said, that's because he hasn't had it yet. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if, if, if Shunryo is so different than the rest of Japanese Zen, or is Soto different than Rinzai, or am I misunderstanding something? Well, um, it is true that um, talking about enlightenment is more common in the Rinzai tradition than it is in the Soto Zen tradition. But the minute I say that, I also have to say there are lineages in Soto Zen that work with koans and um, where there's a, a, a focus on awakening. And there are traditions in Rinzai that have some more of the characteristics of just sitting, that more quiet um, focus that's associated with Soto Zen. So um, the distinctions are broad stroke and um, generalizations. And there are exceptions. Um, there is a contemporary Rinzai, a teacher named Shoto Harada Roshi, a remarkable, remarkable teacher. Um, he started a monastery up in, um, in Washington on Whidbey Island. And um, he, in retreats, will work with people with koans, with breath meditations, with meditations using colors. I mean, he's got such a broad spectrum depending on the particular individual. And he's an extraordinarily gifted teacher. And um, in my experience, a highly realized teacher, one of the great teachers of our time. Um, so, you know, what really matters is the individual practitioner. I remember uh, some years ago when I went to visit the two main training monasteries in the Soto tradition. And it uh, became very clear that the monks there were there for two or three years, um, grueling training, kind of like boot camp. And the main agenda was for them to be certified to be able to inherit. It was like um, joining a union. And yet, um, there was something about the two, those two, two monasteries um, where I found great inspiration. Not so much from the practitioners, but I did from, from the, the temples themselves, the sites where, you know, people have been practicing for centuries. And there is something about being in a place and in a culture uh, where spiritual practice has been going on for a long time. I think the fact that um, Zen in Japan got to be more about inheriting your father's temple and not so much about spiritual practice 
um, was really kind of kiss of death for the tradition. And one of the things I love about Shoto uh, uh, Harada Roshi is you don't get any perks from practicing with him. If you go and study with him at his training monastery, you don't get to go home and inherit your father's temple. You get There's no advantage other than just direct experience, which I think is great. He sure is. Yes. So if you ever get a chance to hear him or see him, watch him walk. <laughs> Go for it. I'm a great fan of his. Maybe on that uh, cheery note. Say his name again one more time. Shoto Harada Roshi. Harada Roshi. There are lots of her. It's a little like Jones in Japan. Um, and he's... Um, The, his monastery up in Washington is called One Drop. And uh, if you don't track him down, um, you can track me down. Um, I have a website under the name Goat in the Road, but it's also under my name. I used to rescue boy goats from the spring barbecue auction. Sort of hard to imagine one drop in Washington, though. Uh, yeah, all that rain. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.